everyone and welcome back to the fintech podcast thank you for joining us and don't forget to check out the other episodes if you haven't already today we are joined by connor fennelly he is this month's front cover on our fintech magazine and is the ceo at leverus we talk about fintech disrupting the financial industry the future of traditional banking and how banks can implement leverus don't forget to check out our socials at fintech magazine and let us know what you think of the podcast enjoy Maybe, maybe just so we can get the ball rolling, you wouldn't mind just giving a brief introduction. Um, I mean, to, to yourself, uh, always keen to kind of understand a bit more about your experience in the industry and I guess how that kind of translates to your approach at Leverus, if, if that's okay to sort of get the ball rolling. Yeah, sure. Um, look, my background was, you know, after college, you know, I did, I did a couple of degrees, different things, but mm. I did my undergrad, postgrad in Ireland, and I did another postgrad in France. But I kind of, you know, it was in the areas of economics and law intellectual property rights, stuff like that. Mm. And after that, I went, I kind of ended up working for some of the big consulting firms actually for a while and then set up on my own and was fairly uh, successful restructuring small and medium sized businesses in the States. And then this was, you know, before the whole internet really took off. And yeah. then with that, there was a whole, you know, plethora of new, new opportunity. And we ended up setting up a number of um, internet businesses and selling them on to, to, you know, to various companies. So I've really spent 20 of the last 25 years in Silicon Valley. Um, and this is kind of a return trip to Europe, if you like, to do because yeah, yeah, yeah. normally that, that would be my, my home territory. Mm. Um, yeah, so you know, in Silicon Valley, we worked on a number of things, some of them not too dissimilar to this, but normally what we do is the easiest way to explain it is we would look for, well, maybe I'll go back a step. I spent about five years running one of the largest independent systems integrations or technology companies, software development houses in, in Southeast Asia, a company we founded, set up, and ran ourselves. Okay. At one point, it had about 750 developers. But in, in between 2000, year 2000 and 2004, we, we ended up doing, I would say, a considerable percentage of the systems integrations work, bank to bank, transformation mm-hmm. that happened in that region at that time. Um, so, you know, competitors would have been companies like, of course, Deloitte and Accenture, et cetera. Yeah. But we ended up doing well um, over there. And then we used that development crew. There was, there was a few hundred people. We split them and used them to develop a piece of software. It was a company that never actually sold a lot of day, but we worked on it for five years. It was a micro billing, actually, okay. a company called EOBuy. But really what it was, it was a financial services layer that sat between the credit cards and the mm. internet. Our credit cards process far, far higher volume. So it's a system that scaled really well. Mm. But anyway, that technology was very important. We ended up licensing it to a number of Fortune 100s. And it, you know, part of it ended up then being used in, in other platforms, right? So not directly applied as we had planned it, but we had a, it ended up finding some significant secondary uses. And then from there, you know, obviously having done several core to core transformations, we kind of understood what a banking platform, what, what the peculiarities of um, legacy platforms, mm. what, what those are and what, mm. what the issues are. And also you're looking at every time you do an implementation like that, the result is always suboptimal. So you're thinking to yourself, sure. if I were to do this, if I were to do this again, and after you repeat that a few times, what would you do differently? And, and then eventually we got to the point thinking, well, how would we architect this if we were to do it from the ground up? It's kind of a natural process you go through when you're, when you're solving problems. And that's what then led to Leverus. So basically, how do you take current but proven tech and construct a model 
that's different to legacy. I mean, legacy is very good in a lot of ways, very robust, very resilient. Yep. Right? Stood the test of time. Really had no issues until about five, six, seven years ago when fintechs start disintermediating and, and showing that you can do things quicker, faster, better, more real time. It's yeah, like, yeah, like, yeah. The tangible differences for an end consumer to enjoy or witness on the platform to take a while to distill. Mm. But the real issues that we saw were if you look at a legacy platform, the way it's constructed, it's not so much the technology that's the, imp the, the, the impediment, it's also the organization composition. Right, so sure, yeah. Everything is organized in silos, right? Mm. So you've got deposits, you've got your checking or your whatever current account we call it over here, mm. you've got access control, and they've all got their own database, their own mid-tier and their own front end. Mm -hmm. So the identity of a customer like you or me is not really known to a bank. Right? It's only one yeah, system. Yeah. The bank can be composed, you know, mid-size tier two could have anywhere between 500 and 1,000 subsystems run. Mm -hmm. right? So then this idea, the holy grail of banking became, you know, OSVC, one single view of customer. How do you attain that? Then you've got all these, you know, data layer kind of things that are mm -hmm. an MDM, you know, master data management kind of layers, better organization, some sort of a data model that gets imposed retroactively on data. All of those things don't really work, though because the fundamental data model is not established well from the beginning. That's one issue with, with legacy. The other issue okay. with legacy is it's product oriented, right? So it's not oriented around customers, it's oriented entirely around products. Yeah. Well, those are two things that we thought were important to change. If you if you were to develop a new system, therefore, it would be entirely customer centric. Everything yeah. a customer would do, irrespective of the service, would accrue to one area and you could use that data, cross-sell, mm -hmm. upsell, and actually just monetizing the data in general. And better information, of course, would come ensue as a result and then one of the other points a couple of other things is the initial capex to run a legacy system is massive the outlay right that's okay. that's a market one can you reduce that second is cost to run mm. right so the, well, legacy systems are expensive to run not intrinsically but because of their complexity right there's so many systems running they're connected monolithically so precariously that they're difficult to maintain mm. and, and and then as a direct consequence also they're massively difficult to change and they're difficult to change also because they're non-homogenous. So for example, yeah. if you want to do something sim simple, like the thing, simplest thing I could think of was like page contact. Instead of using an IBAN, I want to be able to pay to your phone or your email address. Big deal, right? It shouldn't be a big deal. But it turns out that that hits the onboarding, hits your access control, hits payments. That's multiple yeah. vendors in a bank world. Multiple vendors with software in different languages. The change might be pretty small across each of them, but it has to be coordinated through multiple vendors, multiple languages, revisions, and then it's got to be put, because banks don't have test environments, it's got to be deployed live, right, and, and see if any of that works. So, so that's the innovation process of bank. It's massively complex. So what we want to do is create a system from the ground up that would be pristine, built to, we're not doing any technical gymnastics with, with new or fabulous new IP, just using state-of-the-art current tech, best in class, Mm -hmm. And on that on that platform, because you know, current tech knows how to scale, knows how yep. to abstract all the basic principles. We wanted to build an event-driven architecture that was service-oriented, right? Mm -hmm. You know, so you, you could compose it and decompose it right into different pieces, and not everything was connected to everything else in a big monolithic mess. And the result of that would be, of course, that the cost to, to the cost to purchase this thing would be dramatically lower because it could be provided as a service. So it's an OPEX only model rather than CAPEX and a bunch of CAPEX and then OPEX. Mm -hmm. Secondly, cost of change would be negligible because you own the entire code base. Mm -hmm. So we're not going across multiple vendors every time you want to make a slight change, right? So it's just easier to update. 
and cost of compliance, right? Or you know, regulatory cost of compliance is also lower because when something comes along like GDPR or a directive like PSD2 or whatever it is comes along, there are changes you have to make. And if those changes are abstracted from the entire system, then they're they're much easier to make. So those that was the driver. And then when we ran that scenario, what happened is we, you know, typical bank will run at a cost income ratio probably in the mid 60s. Yep. A very few bank would run low 60s perhaps. Um, not, not too many of those around, um, but we actually have created a bank that because everything is kind of automated end to end, and you don't need very many people to, to do stupid functions, right? Functions that are just, you know, moving data from one system to another. All of those redundant things aren't done anymore, so you reduce the headcount dramatically, and also everything is real time, right? So you don't have, you know, the the duplication of tasks nearly as much. So the, the, we would operate very comfortably sub thirty. In terms of okay. which could be a two or three or fourfold increase in profitability. Those are the major things. Okay. And then okay, the other factor was the fact that the system has to be extensible from a business point of view, not just from mm -hmm. a technical point of view. Right. Yeah, you know, lots of legacy systems have kind of a services layer, an API layer, if you like, surrounding their platforms. All it does is allow new things to connect. Mm. But really it's not the connection that was ever the issue. Mm. It's the relationship that's the issue. In other words, who owns the customer? Are you disenfranchised from a transaction? Yeah. So bank wants to work with TransferWise. It's got to hand off the data. TransferWise sets up an account with a new customer. Maybe there's a rev share split. But the way we approached it was, can you set up an infrastructure? And if a third party wants to work with you, well, you've done the access control. You've KYC the individuals already. You just accept that as a given. It's an anonymous transfer for the, for the third party. And then the rev share ha happens on, on the fly as part of the transaction. So, you know, 70, 30 rev share split, 50, 50. The money just goes where it needs to go at transaction time. Yep. And that way, you know, bank can open up its its customer base without sacrificing their identities to to up to other organizations and vice versa. So there's a, right. there's a very good quid pro quo that doesn't involve any disenfranchisement or um, disintermediation. So things like that. No, that's fantastic. So, so I mean, the, the context around the, the legacy or the incumbents and, and the, the, the challenges there that you mentioned, I mean, obviously Leverus is for both more traditional banks and challengers, fintechs and so on, I'm, I'm right in guessing. So is there still issues inherent with incumbents? I mean, if, if you're talking about digital disruption, are the fintechs better place to take a system like Leverus and run with it than an incumbent bank, for example, um, albeit the, the, the solution you provide being a leveler of sorts? I think whenever you put in kind of a, when you add a disruptive or enabling technology, mm. there's always kind of an incubation period before before the proof points are established. Mm -hmm. And then maybe at some point there's a tipping point. And I still think that's a little ways down the road because legacy systems can still do a lot, right? Mm -hmm. And the hygiene requirements of a customer today, like what they actually need from a bank or what they're really, let's say, demanding of, of, mm -hmm. their, of their providers is still quite, threshold is quite low. Mm -hmm. So, and what I always found interesting is that a well-executed hygiene implementation of the standard retail bank today is it actually a fully differentiated proposition? Mm -hmm. Because so many of the legacy guys do such a poor job. So that's why revenue can come along, do the same thing as a bank, and actually succeed because it does it ever so slightly better in, in some ways. But to get back to the question, um, you know, is it easier in some ways work with an incumbent or, or more difficult or, or with a neo? We kind of had to ignore that question at the very beginning because the idea is we build a better platform. And whoever yep. can, better, can, can, can benefit from that should. So from the point of view of the architecture, how it's going to be used, 
we had, we had to kind of be fairly agnostic with regard to that. But obviously, though, the mindset, right, the biggest, I think the biggest uh, impediment with working um, with the traditional banks, let's call them, is probably culture. Yeah. Right? There, there is a very set culture as to how they work. And a lot of that is for very good reason. For example, it's, it's quite difficult. Like, for example, I can tell you what a, the, the, um, the interaction trajectory looks like when we talk to a bank today. Now, it's changing. Great. But a few years ago, we would go in and we talk at the sea level. Mm. And those guys would love it because we showed them what we could do. Blown away. Sure. What happens then is parts of what you do has to connect to the old world, has to connect to the infrastructure. Their tech guys have to get involved. These guys are massively territorial because any change in that monolith, right, can make them responsible for a major disaster. And we've seen examples of that. Yeah. Trusty Savings Bank and, and many others, right? Ulster Bank, right, uh, seven years ago, where data loss can occur and then you've got, you know, you pretty much the regulators all over, you've got issues, right? Um, so in a way, the, the NEOs are a lot more amenable to, to probably work with, with newer technologies, but a lot of them actually aren't looking for technologies like ours. What they're actually trying to do is create a cheaper version of what all faster, they're, they're looking for faster horses, not something new, right? Mm. Well, if you look at the profile of some of the NEOs, I mean, some of them are building their own platforms, but they're building it in a quite a legacy fashion, actually. Okay. Surprising, right? Yeah. You look at the bigger guys, I won't mention any names, but they're almost sure. entirely legacy. Why would you need, if you build a brand new fresh platform and you're a company, mm. you know, one begins with an R, why would you have 5,000 employees when you've no branches mm. ever? Well, the answer is you're compensating for a lack of technology, right? Your system isn't built properly. You know, the company can be very successful and it is like, you know, it's 10 or 100 times bigger than what we are. So yeah, we are, sure. it sounds a bit, bit ironic, but, but really that's not the issue. As a thought exercise, the system is still not built correctly. Right? It's, it's not built... Uh, uh, as good as it could be, not even close. So it's yeah. kind of, so they're kind of running branchless, mobile-first legacy banks, a lot of them. Now some of them maybe a little bit more, but but then the platforms are quite narrow, like like Revolut for like let's say Monzo or something like that as well. Yeah. But in our world, what we set out to do, and the reason why the build took so long is we wanted to build a full services retail bank, mm -hmm. and we want to build a next generation version of that. And what that means is. How do banks make money, right? So really today there's two ways, right? Fees and charges mm -hmm. and interest income. If you look at any of the NEOs, they don't really have interest income. Okay. Right? They, they're not good, they're not providing mortgages, right? Which is where a bank ultimately makes money. Mm. And well, why is that? Well, there's probably a couple of reasons. First of all, because their platforms didn't contemplate the technology to do that, so they can't really offer it. Yep. Secondly, um, generally the balances that are held, the deposit balances held in those companies actually quite low. So they're not being used as a primary account replacement, they're being used as a secondary transaction account. Mm -hmm. So the average balance is, you know, for a lot of these platforms is well under 100, uh, well under 500 euros. So no one's moving their life savings across. But, but as a consequence then, their overall deposit numbers are quite low, therefore yep. they're not really good at lending. So we thought it was really important to have completely native lending capabilities. We're gonna build a platform like this, and you want a bank to be profitable. Yeah, it's one thing to become efficient in cost, but you also have mm -hmm. to address the revenue lines. Mm -hmm. So that's why it's so important that we use the same technology to be able to deliver these, you know, next generation lending solutions on there as well. Because without that, you don't really have a bank. And then the third part, there's one massive asset that's always overlooked by a bank in terms of found revenue, right? And that's, okay. it's data. Yeah. Like most banks have an architect that are data to be fundamentally very useful, right? 
But if you look at Google, for example, Google has established an entire industry um, from a very limited data set. They understand intent. I put something in a search bar, I tend to search for something. And look, I'm going to buy a refrigerator. You know what? You go out and you buy your refrigerator, do the research. Two, three weeks later, you're still getting um, ads for that refrigerator. Yeah. Yep. Bank actually knows what you've done, right? And if you think about it in terms of forensic record, right? There's no better forensic or psychographic mm. record of you as a consumption entity, right? which is all anyone ever cares about in the commercial world. Yeah. Then your bank history. So if you could use that in a slightly different way to Google, and what I mean by that, and this is what we've done. Let's say the value didn't have to accrue in its entirety to AdWords or AdSense and the publishers, but rather came back to the consumer. Mm -hmm. So I get paid for my eyeball times. I watch an ad or engage in something, and, and, and that value comes back to me, or at least the lion's share of it, let's say 80% of it, because you know, the guys who distribute that value back to you probably have to get some portion of it. But let's say you get the lion's share. Imagine what that could do. And we had some idea of what it could do because a few years ago, uh, Accenture did a nice piece of research, which they included in a report called the Everyday Bank. Okay. But in there, what they tried to do on a separate thing where they included data, work, they tried to figure out how much the average US family contributes to Google per year. Right. Okay. Average family being two adults and two kids. Mm. And the answer was something, it was, it was well over $2,000 anyway, right? So I think it was $2,600. Wow. It was a non-trivial amount. Now, that's really significant in a country where the average income is mm. about 30, 30K or something like that. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. You know, it's a significant portion. Um, so we thought then, well, what if a bank who's got far better data quality began to do something like that? Imagine what that ecosystem looked like. It's astonishing. And then imagine further if you federated that data. Mm -hmm. So in other words, banks could work together in that model. They're nodes, right? Because it's only as good as it, how large it is, in other words, right? Yeah, sure. One yeah. bank is doing it and there's 5 million customers there while well, there's a whole other bunch of people. It's got to be relatively ubiquitous to be, to be applicable. So we kind of engineered that idea in there as well. And we built certain things in there to kind of re reduce the cost income ratio for, mm -hmm. um, for banks by using data. And part of that was around, look, what does the bank of 2030 look like? So right. we realized about a year into our build, we could build a technology stack. But we couldn't start building the features on that stack until we had some sort of idea in our imagination as to what the bank of 2030, the bank of a, sure. a near-term future, right? But far enough out that you know you can aspire what that actually looks like. So that was actually part of some of the most difficult stuff we had to do. And if you think about it, right, what do you think the bank is? Like if I ask you, what should a bank be? If you and I, we sat here and we said, look, we want our bank to act like this. What do you want? Well, you don't really want it to be your friend. It's a transactional relationship. Yep. You have. But, so what is the nature of the relationship? Today, it's very transactional. And mm -hmm. it's all polygopolistic. In other words, you don't have a terrible amount of choice. That's what PSD2 was designed to do. I can shift or move. And if I'm unsatisfied here, I can move over there. The ultimate rationale behind PSD2 from a European Union perspective. Yep. But, it's, but that whole thing's turned into something else. It's diluted and diluted down so far. Actually, it just creates additional costs now, and it doesn't really provide much benefit. But the ultimate point is, what, did, what do you want a bank to do? What should a bank of 2030 look like? And the key word that we came up with was advocacy. Banks got to yeah. start thinking on your behalf, looking at you, understanding you better as an entity, and advocating for you. And advocating means, how do I save you money? How do I make you money? 
How do I give you information so you can make better decisions? I'm not going to lecture to you, but I can certainly tell you that if you buy these shoes, you're, you're because we know when your when your salary hits, you're not going to be able to cover your mortgage. Yeah. And we're not going to tell you not to buy the shoes, but we can tell you if you make this decision, there's a chance you might not be able to make the mortgage payment, which is coming three days later. That's just good use of data. We can do things like that. But much more fundamentally, though, the data itself has massive residual value for consumers. And can banks actually put that to work? So in other words, I don't want to be spammed with everything, but if I'm going to change my car, yeah. right, and I've got a BMW 3 Series or something right now, I'm very happy for BMW dealers to come to me or for Audi or whoever is equivalent um, mm -hmm. to come to me and say, look, you can have this offer here and you know it's going to save you a bunch of money and you can sign up to it and you get that through your bank or better to receive information like that. Or I'm five years into my mortgage. Yeah. Here's a better thing right there. I'm going to take three years off my overall payments if I make this decision and move this direction for right now. So these are the types of things that very simple things, right? And then how do you how do you network? How do you connect? How do you spend less time doing the work, right? Transactions, bill payments, all of the hassle that you need to do. So you make that stuff simpler. You make it easier to connect with your families, you know, and, and monitor. Like for instance, if you've got younger kids. You might want to supervise yep. their spending and teach them good fiscal discipline while they're young so they're not just learning this at the last second when they get to university or however it's done today. So those are the types of things that we, we tried to envisage and then build um, you know, as, as we were doing levers. And a lot of that thinking took place five, six, seven years ago, and then, they, and then it's constantly revised. So if that answers your question. It, it does, and, and that focus and that, that energy on, on the shift from – I guess individual product application to the broader customer experience and, and that yeah. advocacy. I mean, do, do you think that that's sort of the, the the biggest shift in banking at the moment, and and certainly the biggest shift that the technology is 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 enabling? You mean as a trend in the market, or as a trend? Yeah. How we, we 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 fit? Look, I, think I guess I mean as a trend, and and how banks should reposition themselves to to. Ultimately, I, I guess. I think, I think banks and bankers are acutely aware of what a better product looks like and what they want from their technology stacks. And I think what they're missing is the product to do it. Yeah. In many cases, right? So, mm -hmm. in other words, where is a non legacy alternative to my legacy bank? Mm. I mean, we haven't started yet, really. We're just about to start. There isn't one. Yeah. So, a lot of the solutions that bankers know they need, like I think bankers know the result of what they need, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. I, you talk to bankers, they've got great ideas for products, right? So the product innovation side, there's no issue at all. The thing is you can't implement them. Or if you do, there's such a high cost that there's 10 other things or 50 other things you can't do. You're, you're definitely going to be making trade-off decisions inside of that. So if you look at the banks today, traditional banks, they're fundamentally undifferentiated, aren't they? Even in lending. Yeah. Yeah. They all do, like show me a bank that does something like head and shoulders above another bank, really. Mm -hmm. Aside from a few neos that are coming and changing, really for 20, 30 years, they're all doing more or less the same thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The only difference is I might get a slightly better um, interest rate on my mortgage here versus there. That's what I'm kind of shopping mm -hmm. for, but it's extremely transactional. So I think, but so given a world where bankers know how to make a better banking product, they're constrained by the tech. Mm -hmm. and And then... Do they know why they're constrained by the tech? No, I don't think you do. I think you've got to abstract it back. And I, I actually think that the fundamental benefits, I know that you, I don't have a revelation about how it appears on the front end, but I think that the fundamental 
pivot points that are going to make a difference are actually quite subtle. Yeah, okay. And what I, what I mean by that is this, I'll give you an example. Mm. Accounts, heart of a bank, right? So if you look at a bank, a bank will set you up with a current account, mm -hmm. deposit account, saving account, whatever you want. Those ideas are well set and they're set in stone and customers understand what they are as well. Consumers understand what a deposit account is. When we started doing this, we abstracted the idea of an account. We don't have, in, in our system, we don't have the notion of a current account okay. or a deposit account or a savings okay. account. We've got the notion of an account. And then there are a set of attributes you can, sit, you can attach to that account. Interest-bearing, yep. not interest-bearing. Mm. Can I transact from the account with a debit card or not transact mm. from the account with a debit card, et cetera, et cetera. You can go down the list. And then it's those attributes you put in the account. So we could actually set you up with an interest-bearing savings account that you could transact from. Mm -hmm. Or an interest-bearing current account or a non-interest-bearing savings account where you're putting money into a pot. It's not actually interest-bearing. There's any flavor you want when you start abstracting. So the idea is... Yeah. Banks, if you look at a banking infrastructure yesterday versus tomorrow, here's what's going to happen, I think. If you look at any bank today, they have thousands or tens of thousands of products because anything that's slightly changed has to be manufactured as a new product, given a new name, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. And that over time becomes very, like even in lending alone, mortgage products, over years, you're going to end up with thousands of, of mortgage products inside a bank on their databases. And sure. you've got to maintain them until the last loan ages out on that platform, right? Yeah. So you, you inherit lots and lots of these products, like thousands or tens of thousands of products, and then you want new providers to replicate or emulate those if you want to do a core-to-core -core transformation, massive complexity. Mm -hmm. so I think what's going to happen in the future is you're going to be able to provide with technology like ours and others a service of one to the consumer, that a consumer can have a unique set of services based on a very a very limited number of products at the back end. For example, in our world, there are a number of ways you can change or personalize your product. Some of those are done by the bank. So the bank could say, look, you've got a checking account and it's interest and it's interest bearing, and you've got a card on it, great, or a current account, right? But then you might be able to do some stuff through our interface with that account as well to make it yours. Like I can add somebody there, like I've got a kid or I've got a spouse or I'll take a second card or I'll set up a new product. We don't maintain that. That doesn't increase the, the product complexity in our world. We can give a bank with seven products that can produce a unique experience for every single user. I think in some ways that might be the start of a revolution in banking because it vastly yeah. simplifies the stack. And it's, it, it will go as broad as your imagination can handle. So, you know, and, and in, in the end, it's a very subtle thing, isn't it? It's not really, there's no major technology required to do that. It's how you compose the pieces. That's it. it it's... And how you abstract the notions, right? So, yeah. so if you make something like anyone who's, that I know that's ever built a bank builds a current account, mm. builds a deposit account. But, but like that's why we thought it was so important to take it back. We don't care. Mm. And maybe in the future, there's a thing called, you know, somebody will come up with a new word for it, right? Coin a new term to describe something yeah. new. We want that to happen. But it will only happen if you're allowed to create it. So that means you have to deconstruct a little bit before doing it. And we do the same. That's just one example as an account. We do that, that kind of across the board. So the question, you know, our teams is always, why? Why? Yeah. Have we gone back far enough? Have we abstracted back far enough? Um, is this a concept that we can look at from one, one, one further level out? And if you can, always do. Yeah, that, I mean, I understand that that removing of 
complexity. It's, it seems such a vast contrast to, as, as how you're sort of describing those two infrastructures. A lot of the programmers get that very naturally, right? Because, yeah. you know, you, you know, if you've developed code, you, you know, if you, if you understand the idea of object orientation, mm-hmm. which is the basis for most modern languages and programming languages today, that's exactly what this is, but just applied to kind of a business way. Can we do, can we object orient the business model? As well as the code base, so we can we can create these reusable yep. pieces. Yeah. So, so uh, maybe on a more more practical level, if if yeah. if, if I'm a a bank um, implementing Leverus yeah. to transform the way I operate, what does that transformation look like, uh, and and how does yeah. that that journey? Well, well, the sequence is really important because let's let's assume the bank already has a going concern. So you've got to, one of, the, one of the trickiest things when you, you interact with a bank is actually explaining them how they get from A to B. Mm-hmm. And you're here, you're set up with a legacy infrastructure, which is, even though everyone is bespoke and everyone is different, they all share certain characteristics. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's, it's multiple subsystem, monolithic, um, et cetera, et cetera. These are the characteristics over here. You want to get it somewhere else. Normally, if it's a traditional bank, they're going to have branches. That's a very useful concept for, for us. Yep. Because what we do is, let's say it's a branch and there's a hundred branches for the sake of argument. We can say, operate our system completely independently. So we'll have our own system of record, et cetera, et cetera, but we'll reporting to you as a slave. So we'll still use your reporting infrastructure. Mm-hmm. You can view us in your world like a branch. So we're branch 201 or 101. See. And that branch, instead of being a retail location with a physical, you know, doors and windows and people behind the counter, this could be your youth proposition mm-hmm. or it could be your wealth proposition or it could be a segment of your business or you could be replatforming or it could be a green fields thing. But a lot of banks are doing challenger propositions or want youth propositions or want digital proposition. Yep. This gives them a way to plug that in that new thing into their old world seamlessly in a way they understand. And what happens? You see, banks report up to the mothership end of day closings. So what does an end of day closing look like? Well, we take our entire system, which which works completely separately and independently from payments perspective, cards perspective, and everything else. Mm -hmm. But we simulate the end of day reporting roll up to the bank. So that means you can plug it in, run it adjacent to your entire infrastructure, and the only connection being that reporting end of day reporting connection. And then over time, Right. So the thing is, you obviously over time want to want to modernize, right? Yep. So then over time, you can actually say, "Listen, this is my starting point. I put a youth proposition over here, student proposition, whatever." Sure. Now, now, I've got time, right? I'm running these two yep. things in parallel. The great thing is, mm-hmm. why can you run it in parallel? Because we're really inexpensive to run in parallel. Right? Mm-hmm. It's not like you've got to replicate the whole infrastructure you have and pay double. No, you'll set up something else. Maybe the incremental increase in cost is five percent. But you're running an entire proposition on that, so it's paying for itself. And then over time, you can take, you know, you can make tactical and strategic decisions. What do I age out? You know, if stuff yes. here is five years remaining on it. I'm going to age it out instead of even trying to migrate it. It's mm-hmm. not worth really it. And what do I need to move across? And you can do it in your own good time, and you can do it very responsibly. But now, mm-hmm. but you've also tested that this thing over here, the small version, is actually working effectively. It's doing everything it should do. I'm becoming more comfortable with it. Then a year later, I put some more stuff on that. And then over time, what you end up is you end up with a more um, more modern version of what you had over here. And you're just evolving and you have a much better digital kind of direction. 
So that's that's how we work with a traditional bank. Working with a new is much simpler, for example, yeah, right? yeah. because you don't have how do I get my old stuff onto the new platform. And and you, you talk about traditional seeking out digital propositions and and, and that evolution uh, evolutionary journey. I mean, your your bank of twenty thirty. Do you see a place for traditional banks? Do you perhaps in the longer term see bricks and mortar banks, or do you think the future will be digital? Our well, well, you see, I think the future is the traditional banks are not going to go anywhere, and the reason for that is very simple. You need to be regulated from a deposit perspective. So you need to hold a banking license to hold regulated capital. Mm. Um, and maybe their profile will change, but their activity is going to be the same. Mm -hmm. So I think what's happened is I think traditional banks will become more digital. I think they're going to have to modernize over time. Mm -hmm. I don't think it, you're going to replace you know, the idea that the regulator, there will always be a supervisory body. I mean, we've been through the past before where that didn't exist, right? And it, it, it's more. <laughs> Uh, in certain countries, you can observe that th that model doesn't work well. So in a world yep. where there has to be some sort of supervisory element to how banks uh, operate with, with end user capital, in that world, you've got a polygopolistic footprint in a market, right? They're, they're, they're not going to be a monopoly, but and the threshold to enter that is very, very high. So if you want to get a banking license, it's not like you can just walk in and get one. I mean, they're trying to reduce it in certain areas right now, but in many countries still, like, it's still, you know, 50 million in, in capital reserve. Um, it can take you two, three years to apply, et cetera, et cetera. So you're looking at about a hundred million scenario just to get started, right? Um, in a lot of places. In some places it might be 10. But the point is, it's not an easy entry for, you're not gonna find a bunch of FinTechs just coming in with millions. It's not gonna be a startup. It's not well-funded. It's gonna come in and do stuff like that. So I think traditional banks are going to survive. I think the neobanks in a way have helped traditionals survive. Okay. Because if you look at Ireland, for example, it's a good example because it's an island and it's a fairly, um, let's say, somewhat sophisticated consumer and that people are educated in what's out in the world. Mm -hmm. And you've got three, three banks that, that mainly operate the traditional banks and they're not capable of doing these new things. But then you've got Revolut and 26 coming in and half the population signs up to those platforms. Yeah. And are they causing a problem for the bank? Are they taking any of its true business, the business that cares about its mortgages, Personal loans, car loans, no. Mm. <laughs> but they're bridging a gap. Sure, right? sure. This idea that I can have a multi-currency account and I can spend yep. in pounds or I can spend in dollars if I want to go to the UK or the US, that that gets addressed. So these guys are actually, believe it or not, I think they're plugging a need and making customers less frustrated with their existing banks. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It kind of vents the frustration a little bit, gives them a little mm -hmm. bit more time. Mm -hmm. Ironically. And then consequentially, Banks are a lot less concerned by those guys. Initially, they were like super paranoid. What's going to happen? These guys are going to come right. in, sure. going to completely disintermediate me. We can't, we can't onboard like that. Right? They're going to destroy us. And then, you know, six months, two years, hence, that's not happening. So rather that they're relaxing into a mode, oh, those guys actually, turns out they're not back for us <laughs> because yeah. all these consumer requests we were getting previously, that pressure has gone a little bit right now. So we can sit back and, and keep doing what we're doing. But I think ultimately, though, to answer your, your original question, I think that traditional banks over the next 10 or 15 years will all have to move from a legacy platform onto a much more um, modern platform. And when I mean legacy, like I just mean monolithic, kind of three-tier architecture. It's going to have yeah. to move to something that's a little bit more scalable and easier to change.
Okay, okay, which uh, is where Leverus comes in. I mean, if, if you're looking at that that Leverus journey so far, you you, you mentioned the, the sort of steady growth and the evolution as, as from, from those core fundamentals to where you are now. I mean, if, where are you now in that journey? And, and I guess how much has that kind of core proposition changed as, as you've been through that development process? Ironically, from when we started back in 2013, early 2014, very little has changed from my perspective. Okay. The vision that we envisaged back, you see, what's required as a solution in banking is not radical. Hmm. It just it has to be just better and it has to be capable of incremental organic improvement as well. So you don't build a platform that's static. You have to build a platform mm -hmm. that's smart. And if you're architected in that modern way, not in a legacy way, you create a platform that's that you even don't control the direction of after a while. So when you yeah. start adding capability from fintechs that are easy to consume on our platform, then the bank that, be, that, that evolves ends up being kind of unique, doesn't it? And, and ends up yep. morphing yep. something that you never contemplated in the first place. So what you end up doing is you give a platform that's capable of following its own direction in terms of innovation and direction. And we don't know how that's going to end up. And, and that's the point. The point is yeah. banks have always been inward looking. Mm -hmm. The sole source of innovation had to come from in the bank, Sure, sure. in the bank, launched through the bank, but now great ideas are coming from elsewhere. And I think a bank's ability, you know, some of the traditional banks will probably taper off mm -hmm. and some, and some will succeed and thrive. And I think it's the ones that will learn how to work with good ideas quickly and appropriate the ideas fast because things change rapidly now, right? 10 years ago in the banking world, actually banking was fundamentally unchanged for 300 years. Yeah. Right? Changed more in the last five or 10 years than it had in the previous 300, mm. right? Since in Crusades. And now what we're looking at is can you appropriate great ideas quickly and mm. bring them in? And if they don't work, it doesn't matter, right? Mm -hmm. Can you work with two or three companies that are doing something similar and see where the winner is? The ability to do that is, you know, that's an architectural concern at the end of the day. That's not something that legacy offers. So I think over time what we have is maybe the maybe the banks that are quicker to respond and pick up start you know modernizing the platforms quicker will have a an inherent competitive advantage over the ones that actually will will remain on legacy and keep yep. putting more and more lipstick on their pick, right? Because you can effectively keep using a legacy maybe for another five, maybe even another ten years, maybe even another twenty years. You can get something out of it. Right? Sure, sure, but. I think the ones that will succeed will be the ones that have the platform capable of more rapid innovation because mistakes will be made. But the quicker you can try things, mm. the more likely you are to reach a point where you're doing what you need to do to drive the market. So, so within that context and, and that, I, I guess that outlook, what, what's the plan for, for Leverus? What, what, what's really your kind of fundamental strategy to, to really get out well, to market our, and grow? Our goal is really simple. I mean, We've developed a platform. That platform is, is blank, right? So mm. we give a platform. Every platform we give to every customer is the same platform. We only have yep. one code base. The differentiation occurs through how banks use our configuration interfaces to build the products they want mm -hmm. through the abstractions that I just mentioned. Like how do I want yep. to set up my, my, my product tiering, my gold, silver, bronze programs, my, how do I want to set up my cards program, how do I want to set up my accounts program, et cetera, et cetera. Those are all things that are individual choices. And that's all authored by banks. So I'd say very easily you could have a platform on, on our, a bank on our platform that's very successful, makes good business decisions, mm -hmm. and one complete crap, makes really poor decisions, right? We, give, we don't give them the technology to succeed. We give, them, we give them a platform to build what they want. It's their strategies that will determine their success. Okay. Yeah. 
So well, something we don't account for really. But but giving them that gives them authorship, and that's the point. Great. Um, yeah. Our, our plans are. We've set up in Europe, and we have some reference implementations in place right now to prove mm. the system works. Mm. The interesting opportunity for us in the near term, obviously, this is a product that's that's engineered and built to go global. But the yep. next really interesting um, opportunity for us is we're beginning to look west now for the first time. Okay. The market that we know very well. Mm. So the US is 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 you know, we're in discussions with a number of potential partners and and customers in the states already. Mm -hmm. So I think the next two to three years will have a heavy US uh, emphasis in our in our world. Right. Yeah. Fantastic. So that, that, I think that's the major thing in terms of direction of where we're looking. And of course, we'll always seek to, to serve as SEPA. We, we more or less concentrate on single European payment area. That's an area yep. we've well covered. We've got a beautiful product for it. But we're, we're ready now to actually um, take the US by uh, take that bull by the horns and see what we get over there as well. Great. Um, I mean, look, it, it it's it's been really interesting talking to you. Fascinating, kind of weaving that narrative of of, of making it very clear of, of how that, that that sort of change and, and that disruption and that transformation goes for those banks. Brilliant. It's been really good talking to you. Take care. Pleasure is mine. Thank you. Thank you. Bye bye. Thanks. Thank you, Matthew. We appreciate it.